So we're going to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 2 tonight. All right, well before we do a little, we'll do a little introduction here to the second chapter of this book of wisdom from King Solomon. I think you'd probably agree with me that most Americans uh, today are richer than most people in the history of the world. <laughs> we live in a very rich nation. And in spite of, you know, I mean, there's pockets of poverty, but it's all relative, it seems. You know, the person that's claiming poverty also has an iPhone and, a, <laughs> you know, whatever. So it's all relative. But in spite of our, all the prosperity we have as a country, uh, materialistically, or maybe because of it, let me say that, <laughs> instead of in spite of it, maybe it's because of it, we really suffer, I think, from a different kind of poverty, and that's the poverty of the soul. Uh, we have so much. We have grown in our, our taste of pleasure, and it's grown beyond satisfaction. We just can't be satisfied anymore with anything. And um, that's why it's good to be in advertising. They never want for customers. They're always out there doing their thing. But we're still searching, in spite of all this poverty, uh, really for, a lot of people are anyway, for meaning in life. Peggy Lee wrote a song, Is That All There Is? And uh, in one part of the song, in the refrain, it says, Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball, if that's all there is. And it seems like almost that's the attitude of of most people. And so Solomon, who was very wealthy, obviously, we looked at this last week, but um, he kind of gives us a test here. You can call it the pleasure test. He's asking really the same question that Peggy Lee asked. Is is this all there is in life, or is there something more? And first he tried to think his way through this question, using his mind, his wisdom, to figure out, the mysteries of human existence, you might say. But um, it ended in him being frustrated, ended up in sorrow. And at this point, he was either going to give up or he was going to sink into deep depression. <laughs> Most people would have. But instead, he takes a different approach. And that's what we see here described for us in chapter 2. He starts kind of talking to himself, you might say. And not about something that's life-changing, like the glory of God or the beauty of God or the good news of the gospel or anything like that. But he really starts talking about doing something more, something new in his life to get more out of life. And uh, so he says right there in verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, so that's why I said he's kind of talking to himself here, come now, I will test you with pleasure and uh, enjoy yourself. And every term in that, in that uh, sentence that we just read is important. You see the word test there. It indicates really that he's following some kind of an experiment that he concocted. A deliberate attempt, you might say, to learn something from personal experience. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's important to understand that you know, that's what he's doing here. The word pleasure shows that he wants to focus on experience. Not knowledge. He tried the kind of the, the thinking method. That didn't work out for him. So now he said, I'm just going to go try all this stuff. He's going to try the pleasures of life. I think there was a song, I don't know if it was by Johnny Cash or who, but in, the, in, the, uh, in one of the, the sentences it says, to taste and to touch and to feel as much as a man can before he repents. <laughs> That's kind of what he's doing. He's saying, I'm just going to take all this in. And another really important phrase here that gets repeated almost in every single verse of this chapter, really, is the word I. You see, he's so focused on himself through this whole chapter. And he's speaking, obviously, autobiographically, so that's, he's going to refer to himself. But you wonder, does he need to do it so much? You see, me, myself, and I, and all these verses. And we get a strong sense of, of boy, he's really... Focusing on self-indulgence here. Uh, and he's doing so in pursuit of self-centered pleasure. 
And so really, he, he, you could say he's become an experimental hedonist. He's just in, all in for whatever is pleasurable in life. Uh, he chooses to make his own personal happiness his chief goal, his chief end in life. And you know what? That's what you see today, right, in our society. I'm sure you see it. Um, it's a temptation for us, if we're honest, uh, to live for ourselves rather than to live for God. That's a temptation we probably face on a daily basis. But he actually went out there and did this. But he tells us almost immediately that his quest failed. As spectacularly as the, as the, the first one did, really, uh, the wisdom route. Because um, he says in verse 1, chapter 2, Come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold... In other words, let me have your attention, folks. This, too, was also vanity. And remember what that word means, like vapor, like nothing. It just means absolutely nothing. Uh, it didn't do anything for him. It was smoke and mirrors. Um, pleasure seems to hold out a promise, really, for purpose in life for a lot of people. But it never lasts. It never lasts. In the end, it always turns out to be empty. It always turns out to be elusive. And by the time his pleasures really floated away here, Solomon was left with absolutely nothing in his mind. Vanity. And this whole test proved out to be meaningless. But we can still learn some things uh, from it. He's not prejudging things. He actually experienced this. Uh, He he understood exactly what he was doing. And so in verses 2 to 8, he lists all these pleasures that he found and and experimented with, and then really in verses 9 through 11, he gives a personal reflection on what he, what he learned from this. And so we can learn a lot from, from Solomon's uh, experiment that uh, all these pursuits never brought him any satisfaction. I think all of us can identify with that because we're all pursuing something whether it's a bigger house, whether it's a nicer car, whether it's a change in a job, change in a relationship, change in something else, make more money to do more things, to enjoy life more. Uh, that's that's kind of where our nature leads us. But the basic principle he tries to get across to us in this chapter two really is that the enjoyment of our pursuits will not come from seeking joy in the pursuit itself. <laughs> That's his point. If you're just pursuing money to have more money, it's, it's going to be a dead end. If you're just pursuing a bigger house to have a bigger house, it's going to be a dead end. You're not going to be satisfied with that. The only way you will have satisfaction in life is when you will pursue the enjoyment of those pursuits with the understanding that they come from your relationship with God. And that's what his, his point is. And so first of all, we want to look at the, the three problems here we face. And you look here, these, these words I put up there in the introduction of your outline, they're labor, it, it, it happens ten times, work happens five times, toil four times. So it's really, he's really focusing on something that most of us have. We have a career, we have something we do for a living, uh, and we pursue that. And that rises to a... Uh, sometimes an unhealthy part of our life. And, and we need to kind of realize that, okay, this isn't all that life is about. It's not just about the career. It's not just about the job. And so he, he focuses on a couple problems. The first problem being this, our pursuits do not bring satisfaction. That's what he covers in verses 1 through 11. So let's read those, and then we'll, we'll continue here. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you, with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with all my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. 
I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who went before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Some question that, but (laughs) that's what he says. Verse 10, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. That really tells us that our pursuits do not bring satisfaction. They don't. Uh, What pursuits is he talking about here? Well, he starts off with fun and laughter right there at the top in verse 2. I mean, he literally pushed laughter and fun and to the point where it was madness, he says. It accomplishes nothing. And when you think about it today, where do people go after work, generally? They go to what? What kind of hour do they call it? Happy hour, right? I mean, it, it, it's just kind of part of our culture. This is what we pursue. Uh, they try to laugh their way through life without ever discovering any kind of joy in God. But even in laughter, unfortunately, there can be great sorrow. The laughter never lasts. If it doesn't come out of the heart that's filled with the joy of God, it accomplishes absolutely nothing. And so he experiments here with comedy. A lot of people use comedy to make it through life. And a lot of the people that make us laugh, we find out, by their very real life experience, they're miserable. They're making everybody else laugh, but they're crying on the inside. Some to the point of committing suicide. And then everybody stands back and goes, wow, what happened with that guy? He was such a comedian. He was so... And he was, you know, found dead. And so, a lot of times when people feel insecure, they make a joke out of it. That's what happens. A lot of times when people feel uncomfortable in a situation, what do they do? They laugh. I remember when we were down in, in the desert at a church down there, uh, they had a baptismal at our, a baptism at our, at our house. We had a pool in the backyard. And so the whole church was there. And uh, everybody was sitting around the pool, and some people were sitting in those white plastic chairs. Well, there was one lady in our church that probably exceeded the capacity of the chair. <laughs> okay, I'll just be nice and say it that way. And she was sitting there, and all of a sudden, all, all the legs just gave way, and down she went. Well, I mean, this happens in front of a group of people, right? So, and she started laughing right away. So, well, you know, most people started laughing because it's just kind of a weird thing to happen, right, at a baptism. And, you know, so people, are you okay? Yes, and it's kind of chuckle, chuckle. Well, it was, it was an offense to some people that anybody laughed at that. But that's just kind of a natural, almost a natural thing sometimes for people. It doesn't mean they're being malicious. I think when, when they get down on themselves, people, sometimes they make fun of other people. They try to mock other people. Or when they're bored, they look for something to give them a giggle and they'll, they'll create a, uh, something to, you know, sitcom or whatever to occupy their time. Anything to get a laugh. Well, he tried this kind of thing. Solomon did. But it failed to bring him any lasting fulfillment. That's what he tells us here. Um, he says there in verse 2, I said of laughter, it's mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Now, it doesn't mean that he's out of his mind. Uh, the way we think of it today, but it it really refers to something sinful in the context. Derek Kidner, one commentator, says this, moral perversity rather than mental oddity. That's what he's speaking of. And a lot of laughter is like that. It's, It's morally perverse. Not all of it. doesn't mean you have to walk around with a stern look on your face all the time, that kind of thing, because God does want us to enjoy life. There's a kind of joy and a laughter that brings glory to God. 
Um, in Proverbs 31:25, we see that. But a lot of joking is frivolous, it's superficial, or it could be sarcastic. Uh, sometimes it can even be cruel. And so we have to, you know, be careful in this area. But this is the, the way he went down. I mean, he probably brought in the, the best comics of his day and set them up in his little palace and said, okay, let's, let's see what you have. They had a comedy club right there. But Solomon discovers something when it comes to understanding the meaning of our existence is laughter turns into, turns out to, to be useless pleasure. And, and life is no laughing matter when you stop and think about it. It just isn't. And some people laugh their way all the way to the grave, but there's nothing funny about the deathbed of someone who dies without Christ. And so we need to be sensitive to that. Second thing he points out is drinking, verse 3. The next pleasure that he tried was alcohol. And this is a, a popular way in our society that people find enjoyment in life or to escape from their troubles, whatever their reason is. He, he, you could say he found a lubricant for his laughter. He says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven for the few days of their life. Uh, he saw that a great number of people turned to drinking to have fun. Just like television programs, commercials today, everyone keeps on asking for a drink. You know, once in a while I'll watch some cop shows. You know, Blue, Blue Bloods is one. You know, you watch that show. And, I mean, every, not every show, but every time they're on the screen, they have a, a glass in their hand and they're drinking something and it's obviously alcohol. I mean, I'm like, if these people drank that much, they'd be drunk all the time. I mean, because it's not just, you know, a beer. It's like the hard stuff they're drinking. And, and, you know, that's what you see. And you see it out there and you think, well, that's just the, you know, that's just the thing that people do. Well, Solomon is telling us from his experience, he checked it out and he said, you know what? It's a colossal waste of time. It turns, you know, it really destructive in nature you're right um and it this does is isn't saying obviously that you know that alcohol is is forbidden that's not what he's saying what is forbidden is getting drunk but he does kind of strike that negative note cheer one's body with wine so he seems to be abusing (laughs) alcohol you might say in a wrong way Uh, Rather than receiving wine as a gift and drinking it with thanksgiving to God, he took it for himself for his own selfish pleasure. And uh, you just have to be aware of that. That's what he's doing here. We know from Solomon's other Proverbs, in Proverbs 20, verse 1, he says, Wine is a mocker, strong drunk, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So he even goes against his own advice here and says, I'm going to try this out, because he could. And uh, he basically is doing a uh, wine tasting test here, a controlled experience experiment. I don't think he was a, a drunkard. I don't think he, he was an alcoholic. I think he was trying because he says there he maintained some wisdom when he was doing this test. So he wasn't out there, you know, just blowed out of his mind doing irresponsible things. He was doing this as a way to say, hey, everybody else is doing this. Let's see if this will give me pleasure. Uh, and he found out that it didn't. It, it, it proved, once again, to be uh, vanity. I, and you see this throughout our, our culture. You see it mostly in advertising. You know, you, you know the phrase, you, you hear it in commercials, at least you used to. Uh, I remember it when I was a young child, hearing, you only go around once in life, so what? So you have to grab all the gusto you can get. Remember that? Um, you know, that's, that's the kind of mentality that really he was doing here. He was grabbing all the gusto, but he still came up empty, completely empty. Well, he also looked at his achievements um, because he was rich enough to try all this stuff. I mean, he had buku bucks, so, you know, there was nothing he could not do. And here he he talks about his achievements in verses 4 and 6. I mean, you know, we read it. He built beautiful houses. He built cities, um, built all kinds of things, pools, 
Uh, one commentator says if th these pools are the same pools that are there today, uh, the lower pool was 582 feet by 207 feet and 50 feet deep. The middle pool was 423 by 250 and 39 feet deep. The upper pool was 380 feet by 236 feet and 225 feet deep. I mean, he did everything that he did in grand, beautiful scale. He was not going to be undone or overdone by anybody. And so he even concludes all his achievements, everything that's written down there. I mean, turn over to, to uh, 1 Kings chapter 9. Because this gives us a little bit of an idea of what this guy was like and the kind of life he lived. 1 Kings 9. If you look at verse uh, 9, verse 10, it says, At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. All right, so he, he, was, he was a builder. He was somebody that really accomplished something. Over in verse uh, 24, it says, But Pharaoh's daughters uh, went up from the city of David to her own house that Solomon had built for her. And it, it, it goes on and on. I mean, he was, he was a builder. He also it talks about King Solomon, who spent a decade building his royal palace back in chapter 7, 1 Kings chapter 7. I mean, I'll just read part of this. It's just 1 to 12. It says, Solomon was building his own house 13 years. 13 years, and he finished the entire house. You say, wow, that's a pretty long time. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits, and it was built on the four rows of cedar pillars, the cedar beams on the pillars, and it was covered with cedar above the chambers. And it goes on and on and on and on. It tells you how he built this house. I mean, it's an amazing structure. Um, it would have been 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Pretty big place. Um, and he was, he was skilled in this. It wasn't like he hired somebody to do it. It says he did it. He was in charge of it. I'm sure he had servants that helped him with the manual labor. But this was a great expense. And apparently he also had um, the ability to make wine, and he was into vineyards and everything. Uh, it says he planted many vineyards in chapter 8, verse 11, um, which supplies all the, the, the wine for all the royal banqueting that he was going to do. Um, he was into uh, horticulture, loved plants, apparently, planting flowers and fruit trees, fruit, fruit trees all over the place. Um, he had some kind of a interest in aqueducts and all that because all this was had to be irrigated he had reservoirs large enough to water a small forest it said so i mean this is only a great man could attempt these kind of things with the uh, resources to do so so he had houses he had vineyards he had gardens he had parks he had trees he had pools he had everything i mean it sounds like the garden of eden almost Gary Kidner says this, he creates a little world within a world, multi-form, harmonious, exquisite, a secular garden of Eden, full of civilized and agreeably uncivilized delights with no forbidden fruits. So it was a pretty amazing task. But even that, after that, he says, you know what? I looked at all this stuff. And, uh, no, not doing it. He had possessions. I mean, if you compare the wealth of Solomon with men of today, I don't think anybody has the amount of wealth that Solomon did, comparably, if you adjust all the, the monetary things. 
Um, even though he had so much wealth, it, it could not bring him lasting happiness. Beyond building all his projects, he was very wealthy. In verse 7 there, he says he bought male and female slaves. That's a sign of wealth. But it's also kind of an extra sign of wealth if, they, if you actually have them born in your house. In other words, <laughs> they're there for a while. You maintained these slaves as part of your household. You didn't send them away at the end of the day. Uh, he said he had great herds and flocks, more than anybody else that he ever had in Jerusalem. And so he had to have a huge <laughs> workforce, obviously, to run this daily operation. This is something he couldn't do on his own. Uh, but if you look back at 1 Kings chapter 10, once again, 1 Kings 10, Uh, the queen of Sheba, uh, in verse 4. If you listen to this, this is just insane. Uh, she sent a letter to Solomon. He answered all her questions, and there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And then in verse 4 it says, And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his service, servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he had offered at the house of the Lord. There was no more breath in her. In other words, she was completely blown away. She was overwhelmed. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Your wisdom and your prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. In other words, it's more than even what the report could contain. He says, happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. He had many animals. Um, I mean, they would prepare all kinds of food every day. If Look at chapter 4 of 1 Kings. It gives us a little insight into their, their daily meals. Now, obviously, this all wasn't just for Solomon. In verse... 1 Kings 4.23, verse 22, it says, Solomon's provision for one day, one day, was 30 cores of, of, of fine flour. That's like, I think it's, uh, there you go, whatever that, uh, I heard it, yeah, it's, 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 yeah, six bushels. So it, it's quite a bit of food, okay? Um, he said, 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20, this is every day, folks, okay, every day, 20 pasture-fed cattle, none of this Safeway meat, I mean, this is the finest meat that you can get, right, Um, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl, I mean, can you imagine? Now, obviously, like I said, it wasn't all for him because he had other people to feed. <laughs> With a estate like this, you can only imagine. So he had many possessions was the point. And he's pointing that out to us. But then in verse 8, he continues. He says, you know what? I had, I had money. I just didn't have stuff. I had money to buy this stuff with and to maintain the stuff that I had. A lot of people end up with a bunch of stuff, but they can't maintain it because they have no money. Um, verse 8 it says, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Um, I mean, if you were to convert all this stuff today, he was probably the wealthiest monarch in the ancient world. He had it all. He had everything. Uh, some of his treasure... Uh, history tells us came from his own people because he taxed them. 
Uh, and some of the money came from foreign powers that he kind of had a uh, treaty with or whatever for protection. But all of it came from somewhere else. Um, and that's why he says, I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of the kings and the provinces. So he had all this, this money. And then it continues there in verse 8, and it says, not only that, but I had singers, both men and women. You know, so he was, he was a music man. He liked music. He had a little studio in his palace. He experimented with music. He probably had the best musicians, because he had the, the, all the money, of the ancient world. Um, and he, he had them anytime he wanted. I mean, once in a while, I'll be flipping through the channels, and, you know, you see a old band or whatever, they're in concert, and it's like, oh, it brings back memories, you know, whatever. You linger there for a couple minutes, and, you know, I remember the first concert I ever went to was a, a, uh, uh, the, the group Chicago. And, uh, you know, it's just when I was in high school. We actually skipped school to go to this, this concert. And uh, it was like, it's just it's in my mind. So whenever I hear a song from Chicago, all that stuff comes back, you know. And uh, can you imagine just being able to call up Chicago and say, hey, you know what, I want to do a concert. <laughs> well, what's that? Well, don't worry, we'll pay you whatever you want. I mean, that's the power this guy had. Uh, and it was a rare pleasure back then. A lot of people didn't couldn't afford it, couldn't entertain themselves that way. But he says, you know what? He brought it right into his house. Whether it's choir or a band or whatever it was, if he wanted it, it was there. And then also the concubine, he had personal pleasures that he was available to him. Um, he speaks of many concubines. In First in, in Kings 11.3, it gives us the raw statistics of this and you wonder here's where i question the guy's wisdom to be honest with 700 wives and princesses it says 300 concubines uh that's a little overdoing it there solomon um i mean we can't even handle one wife most of us so i can't imagine how you but anyway you know that's that's that aspect of it and then lastly he had fame he had fame Verse 9, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. He throws in there, also my wisdom remained with me. A few, main, few people in the ancient world had as much testimony to their own success as Solomon did. I mean, he just didn't speak about it. He showed people it. He had women, he had song, all that. Whenever he wanted it. I mean, today he'd be on the cover of Fortune magazine. Or he'd be, his, his houses would be featured in Architectural Digest. He'd be having pop stars sing at his birthday party. He'd be surrounded by supermodels. I mean, it's hard to think of that kind of life, and if we're really, really honest with ourselves, there's part of us that says... Yeah, that'd be nice for a day. <laughs> you could just snap your fingers and do whatever you want. I want to go to Europe. Okay, let's just book the first class flight online. Who cares if it leaves, you know, tonight we're flying first class. Well, how long are you going to stay? I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. Where are you going to stay? I don't know. Find a hotel. And it's going to be a nice one. Because I got the money to do it. I mean, you know, that kind of, of power, that kind of opulence, you know, uh, some people want to live like that. They want to live like a king or a queen. I mean, if we're really honest, all things being equal, most of us would probably say, well, you know what, I'd rather have a, a bigger, nicer house than the one I have. I'd rather have a little more money in my account than I do. I wish that I had someone that I could call up at any time of the day or night and say, hey, you know what, uh, could you wash the car for me? Could you do this? Could you do that? And they do it. Um, 
I mean, and then you, you think of all the money he had, which just opens up endless possibilities, right? It's very easy to grow envious of people like that. That's why some of these reality shows are such a draw, because you're looking into people's lives who, wow, this is amazing. I mean, if you could get away with it, wouldn't you be tempted to grab some of that gusto for yourself? I think you probably would if you're honest. Well, here's how he summarizes this experiment with pleasure. He says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. He says in verse 10, whatever my eyes desires, desired, I did not keep from them. Very dangerous statement. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Now, the Bible warns us against this. First, first John chapter 2, verse 16 calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the pride of life. Um, in Psalm 119, verse 37, we're warned. It says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways, O Lord. But he disregarded all this completely for this test, set it aside. Um, whenever he saw something he wanted, he just took it. Whenever he was attempted, uh, attempted to indulge in something for fleshly pleasure, pleasure, he did. There was nothing, it says, he denied himself visibly entertaining or inwardly satisfying. And I think he did it because he thought he had it coming. I deserve it. That's why he speaks so much of himself here as a reward for all this this work that he had done. Um, He was really living the life of the rich and foolish. (laughs) It sounds strange to hear him say that his wisdom remained with him. Now, it couldn't be talking about the kind of wisdom that begins with the fear of God because some of these things that he was doing was not honoring in God's sight. Maybe he's referring to his raw intelligence. I don't know. But I think he he really meant that he was serious about conducting this experiment. He didn't get caught up in all this. He was testing his heart to see whether pleasure would show him the meaning of life. Derek Kidner, once again, he says, part of him stands back from from it all to see what vanity does to a man. What was the result? What happens to people who pursue any and every pleasure? It tells us they're sorely disappointed. Um, I mean, when you think of Solomon, we might be envying him, but I think maybe today he he might even envy us. I'm sure we live in better homes than he did, with better furniture, climate control. We probably maybe dine at a larger buffet. When we go to the grocery store, we can buy almost anything we want from anywhere in the world in a matter of seconds. We listen to whatever kind of music we want, commercial-free, if you have Sirius or whatever, you just tune in whatever channel you want. As far as personal pleasures and that whole thing, there's a whole realm of stuff out there. I mean, by every indication, I think, today we are living in the times that Paul talked about to Timothy about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. He said that men would be what? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Um, everything is offered to us. Nothing is unavailable. With the internet, you can... <laughs> it's all right there. And are we satisfied? No. <laughs> we still want more, don't we? We want... Uh, a faster internet connection, a faster phone, a bigger screen, a better car. There's a man by the name of, of Greg Easterbrook who wrote a book, the, the Progress Paradox, and it's subtitled this, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. 
And he proves in this book that we have more of almost everything today than we ever had in life except happiness. As a matter of fact, he even goes as far as to say the more we have, the unhappier we become. (laughs) Because we know we'll never be able to get all the new things that we want. There's always something else lingering out there around the corner. And see, that's where Solomon is realizing, you know what, I experienced all this pleasure, anything that anybody could have ever afforded. And you know what? It didn't do me any good at all. Uh, In verse 11, he clearly points out, I considered all the hands... All that my hands had done and the toil that I extended in doing it, behold, it was all vanity, striving after the wind. Uh, that word consider there literally means to face, face the hard facts, to look someone right in the eye. So Solomon is facing up to this situation. He's not walking away from it. He's not sucked in by it. He's not saying, wow, I'm just going to live this way for the rest of my life. He realizes this is vanity. This is, this is meaningless. There's nothing to it. You can squeeze all the pleasure you want out of it, but if you do it for the wrong motives, with the wrong pursuits, there's nothing to be gained by living under the sun. What he's really trying to tell us is pleasure pursued for its own sake does not and cannot satisfy our souls. When you pursue pleasure for its own sake, it's not going to give you any satisfaction at all. Well, I remember hearing an interview with Tom Brady years ago. On 60 Minutes, they interviewed him. And at the time, he had just won their third Super Bowl. And they asked him a, a question. He said, and his answer was this, um, they were asking him kind of like, are you ever satisfied with this? I mean, this is your third Super Bowl. You're going to retire? What's going to happen? And he said this. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. I mean... This isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And the interviewer asked him, well, what do you think the answer is? And he just hesitated and he looked at the guy and he stared at the guy and he said, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. Sad. Sad. You know, the answer is our dissatisfaction with life should point us where? Back to God. Not deeper into pleasure, not away from him, but toward him. That's, that's the purpose of it. If all the pleasures under heaven, under the sun, can't satisfy our souls, then we need to go beyond that. We need to look to the God of heaven. C.S. Lewis writes this, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that what they do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things, he writes, in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. There was something we, gra- we, ga- we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. See, our unsatisfied longings really give us that spiritual clue, I would say, that we are made for the pleasure of God. And so there's nothing wrong with enjoying life But when you do it simply for yourself, that's where it's wrong. That's where it's it's going to end up 
empty. Uh, Everything Solomon pursued, think of this, Jesus was tempted by, but he resisted it. Everything, every vice that that, that Solomon pursued, Jesus was somehow tempted because it says that he was tempted in all ways, as we are, yet without sin, but he resisted it. So the, the, the crucified Christ offers himself to us as the source of all satisfaction. And so we have to be reminded of that. Now, you notice here in these verses that we've read that over and over and over again, you see myself, myself, myself. You see it some five times in the New American Standard, I think four times in the ESV, those words exactly. Um, and it points out a couple things. It points out, first of all, our pursuits do not satisfy even if we excel in them. I mean, Solomon wasn't like the bottom of the class. I mean, he was far above anybody. And yet he still, all his pursuits came up empty. In verse 10, even if we explore everything possible, did everything, but it came up empty. If we enjoy everything that you've done, Talk to a lot of people to have, you know, to come to the end of their life and they're, they're realizing that, wow, they've had it pretty good. But they still don't have Christ. And at the end of their life, they're miserable. Talked to a friend, a police friend the other day who retired, moved, moved out of the area. Yesterday I talked to him. Living a nice life up in Sparks, Nevada. And I've witnessed to him over the years and kind of says he knows Christ, but I, I don't really see it, but you know, he's not antichrist or anything, but he, I just don't think he's put the pieces of the puzzle together yet. And so he texted me and said, hey, I appreciate your prayers. Went in for a test and I have some kind of cancer at the base of my tongue. I don't know how, what's going to happen. And part of me was sad, but part of me was like, thank you, God. You're going to get his attention one way or the other. You know, so I called him and we talked. But, you know, sometimes we... We forget that. And here's a guy that's pursued all his life, his career, and now he's retired, living this nice life, and boy, he still doesn't have things in the right priority. So the first problem is our pursuits do not bring about satisfaction. Uh, Charles Bridges said this, the crumbs of the gospel are infinitely richer than the dainties of the world. And that's so true. Um, I think the other thing is is that death is no respecter of persons and this is what he covers in verses 12 to 17 so let's read that verses 12 to 17 so I turn to consider wisdom in the madness and folly for what can the man do who comes after the king only what has already been done verse 13 then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this is also Uh, vanity this also is vanity verse 16 for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come all will have been forgot long forgotten how the wise dies just like the fool so i hated life because what is done under the suns was so grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind What's he, what's he pointing out here to us? He's really saying that, you know, whether you excel in everything, whether you explore everything, whether you enjoy everything, in the end, we all have a death sentence. <laughs> We're all going to die someday, unless the Lord comes back first. And death is no respecter of persons. It's inevitable that we will die. Um, no matter how much you've achieved, 
everybody is going to die. And that's the great equalizer in life when you think about it. Um, Death does not recognize the excellence of wisdom. That's what he tells us there in verses 12 to 14. Death doesn't care. You can be as wise as you want, but that's not going to prolong your life. Your days are numbered. Now, being wise is obviously better than being foolish, (laughs) but death doesn't recognize that. Death doesn't say, oh, this guy's wise, that guy's foolish. Well, I'm not going to let this guy die because he's wise. It doesn't do that. We're all going to die. Also, death does not respect the desire for wisdom. That's what he points out there in verse uh, 15. He really wants to to know. A person's desire to seek wisdom has nothing to do with delaying their death. Thirdly, death doesn't remember the works of wisdom. The wise man dies just like the fool dies. And a little time passes before they are all forgotten. Uh, That's a very humbling thing when you think about it. You know, there's going to come a day when we're all going to pass away. And we're all going to be spoken of in the past tense. And maybe occasionally at a family get-together or something. Oh, remember that? Yeah, yeah. But other than that, people aren't going to be talking about you. Just not. It doesn't work that way. People move on with their lives. Also, death doesn't relieve the burden of wisdom. You know, his wisdom really called him to understand that death was coming, but he couldn't do anything about it. (laughs) And that produced this burden that he had. Um, You see that a lot of times with people who are very, very, very wealthy. And you think, wow, they're, they're going to somehow prolong their, they're going to come up with a way to prolong their life. But inevitably, what's going to happen? They're going to die. You know, I, I think of, uh, who is it, Alex Trebek, who's got uh, pancreatic cancer. He's been dealing with this for a little over a year or two or whatever. Uh, eventually, he's going to die. You know, but boy, putting all this, and you should, rightly, put all this effort into sustaining your life. I'm not saying that's wrong, but it doesn't matter. He's still going to die. So, death is that equalizer. It has no respecter of persons. And then thirdly here, he points out that, you know what, besides that, others are going to get what you had anyway. (laughs) You can't take it with you, in other words. Others will inherit what you have done. Look at verse 18. Moreover, I saw under the sun, or wait, verse 18. Sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or foolish. Uh, You know, this is his sons, Rehoboam. You know, he was... Interesting. And, uh, you know, to say the least. And his other son, they, they didn't, it wasn't good what they did. Um, and so he says, you know, I don't know what they're going to be like. I don't know if they're going to be wise or not. Um, but I, I'm going to have to leave it. I can't take it with me. Yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So he just kind of points out there that this is going to happen. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of all my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who didn't toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil, he even says. What has a... Man, from all his toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun, for all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This is also vanity. So he points out here, basically, that, you know what, there's some principles here that he wants us to understand. 
First of all, in verses 18 and 19, he says, we don't know what they're going to be like, the people that we leave these, to, these things to. They could squander it, as so many people do. We have the slightest idea. And that was really the, the case with, with his stuff. And then you look at, you know, the second point here is they've not labored for what we have done. He looked at that and said, that doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, you might think, well, I worked hard for all this stuff. You know what? It doesn't matter. Because you're not going to take it with you. It's irrelevant. Someone else is going to get it when you're gone. State, relative, whoever. And so, you know, this is, this is kind of a, a frustrating situation to be in. Because usually people that have a lot of things are very wealthy, are very controlling. And in the end, they really don't have a whole lot of control. Um, and then thirdly, our struggles and sorrows make no difference. You can struggle, you can go through sorrow, you can do all this stuff, but in the end, it doesn't matter. What's going to happen is going to happen. It seems almost fatalistic the way he's talking, but that's where you have to put things into perspective. And that's where these principles that we need to apply come from here in verse 24. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. A lot of people have a problem with this verse. They say, wow, what's he saying there? You should just drink, eat, drink, and be merry? <laughs> no. Look at what he says. Nothing better for a man to do this. Why? Because God created all this stuff. If you have the, the proper understanding that our satisfaction is based upon the resources that God provides for us, there's nothing wrong with having joy, enjoying the pleasures of life when you realize where these pleasures come from. If you don't, then, then you have a problem. And that's what the Bible says over and over and over again. Um, he says, this was from the hand of who? God. That's where it comes from. That's where lasting joy, lasting satisfaction, that's the only place it will come from. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15 says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. All those things come from God. It's kind of like when we pray, you know, give us this day, what, our daily bread. Who are we praying to? We're praying to God. We're not praying to our employer. We're not praying to somebody else. We're praying to God. Unfortunately, what happens is what Paul says, today we live in this kind of a world, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, if you look at those verses, it tells us, it says, the Spirit expressly says, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In other words, they, they don't even realize they're doing anything wrong. They don't care. Verse 3, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. So, you know, the idea that, you know, we're supposed to live some cloistered life away in a, in a monastery somewhere, that's, that's not what the Bible calls us to do. We're called to enjoy life. There's nothing wrong with having nice things and enjoying, but you have to realize where they came from, that they came from a, a blessing from God. And so you realize that the, your relationships come from, or re, resources come from God alone. Also, the satisfaction is based, or the pleasure is based on our relationship to God. That's what he says in verse 25. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? 
I mean, yeah, you know, the, the pagan guy that's living up the life, that has got a billion dollars in the bank. You look at his life and you go, man, I wish I had a taste of that. No, you don't. I guarantee he's miserable. He will be one day if he's not now. Why? Because there's no relationship with God there. There's no way for him to enjoy these things in a way that would bring satisfaction because he thinks he's the resource of all these things. And that's why he says, apart from him, apart from God, satisfaction is based on being rightly related with God. Once you get that right, then everything else just fits into place. Deuteronomy chapter 16, I'll just read it for you. It says, verse 10, Then you shall keep the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you, at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. You know, satisfaction comes out of that relationship with the Lord. And also it's based on our response to God in verse 26. He says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the, the, the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. What's he saying here? Is he saying that, oh, you've got to do good works to get to heaven? Is that how this works? No, he's not saying that at all. We're not discussing how a person becomes a Christian in this context. We're dealing with the conduct of a person's life, and that's what he's trying to point out. And so he says there that, you know what? If you please God, He's given you wisdom and knowledge and joy. That's that's going to be the result. You're going to have a joyful life, walking with the Lord. And when you think of the pursuits of this life, you think of just just think of your daily life. How many things that you do on a daily basis have a tendency to not draw you closer to God, but to draw you away from God in your relationship with Him? And they could be good things. I'm not saying they're bad things, but it, it's it's very easy to, you know. In our, in our society today to fall into a trap of, okay, you go to church on Sunday, you go to church on Wednesday. And you don't open the Bible the rest of the week. And yet, this is God's letter to us. It's his book to us. It's the words of life. It's the words of joy and satisfaction when we read those words. And yet, all these other pursuits seem to close in. We're not responding to the God, even though we have a relationship with him, even though we know that all the resources come from him, you know, we kind of dumb it down to praying before our meals and going to church on two days a week or whatever. And yet it's so much more. It should be so much more. And so you need to stop and you need to say, okay, well, is it wrong to have any kind of a joy or satisfaction in life? That's not true. For the people of God, there's something... John Piper's made a big deal of this called Christian hedonism. (laughs) It's really, he explains it this way. He says, Christian hedonism is the conviction that God's ultimate goal in the world for his glory and our deepest desire to be happy are one and the same because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. See, he's not only the supreme source of satisfaction for the human soul but god himself is glorified when we are satisfied in our walk with him in our relationship with him that's why psalm 16:11 says the fullness of joy and joy forevermore are found only in who in god in our relationship with him and so you can pursue all the pursuits you want. You can do exactly what Solomon did if you want. But in the end, why? I mean, he did it. 
and he had the resources to do it, and he said, it's empty. Outside of a, a relationship with, with God, with Christ, it's all empty. Danny mentioned William Cowper, man who wrote that beautiful hymn that we sing so often. On Sunday, I think he talked about this. But the song begins, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood to lose all their guilty stains. See, the only answer to the futility of life's pleasures and seeking the pursuits of of all the stuff the world offers us is to find joy, to find satisfaction, to find fulfillment in the precious blood, the precious sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only then can you honestly say that, wow, okay, now life makes sense.